I'll call the second case now, DeRosa versus McKenzie. Mr. Williams, you've reserved 15 minutes for rebuttal. I have. You may proceed. Good morning, and may it please the court, John Williams, on behalf of William DeRosa, and with me is Courtney Sabo. Can you make sure the microphone's close to you? We want to make sure we hear you. Thank you. The issue in this case is whether a defendant can be held liable for the tort of defamation when he or she plays a responsible role in the commission of that tort. Even if he or she was not the one who wrote the defamatory words, the one who actually put pen to paper. We submit that the answer to that question is yes, because it is black letter law in Minnesota and in every other jurisdiction that an individual who takes a responsible part in a defamation or who directs a defamation can be held liable for that tort. This rule of law is specifically set forth in the restatement of torts, section 577, comment F, and in the treatises that are cited in our briefs. Those are authorities uh, that do not appear to have been considered by the Court of Appeals and those are authorities that have not been addressed by the respondent in this case to this court. I would also submit that the error of the Court of Appeals can be fairly and plainly seen in its reliance on the Ellingson versus World Amusement case, a 1928 decision of this court. The Court of Appeals, at the end of its decision, cited Ellingson for the singular authority for the proposition that liability can attach in a defamation case, quote, only if the defendant is the author. Ellingson did not say that. It did not say anything close to that. Ellingson was not even a defamation case. What Ellingson actually said, and may I quote, it is the universal rule that an officer who takes part in the commission of a tort by the corporation is personally liable for that tort. That is the correct statement of the law, and that is why the decision of the Court of Appeals should be reversed by this court. Let me turn to this issue, Weinberger. Let me turn to the issue of the court's reliance on Weinberger. Weinberger was first introduced at the district court Counsel, level. does it matter in this um, case what the title is um, for Mr. McKenzie? No. And tell me why. Why not? Because, you mean his position as CEO? No, absolutely not. Why not? <laughs> why not? Because the rule is very clear. Anybody who takes a responsible part in the commission of a tort is responsible for that in a defamation action. It doesn't matter if he is the CEO or not. And that seems to be why and how the district court and the court of appeals seem to get off track. 
they continue, uh, particularly the district court, continue to say. Because as I understand your argument in this instance, you would be filing against Mr. McKenzie regardless of his title or the fact that he was the CEO of the company. Correct. It's because of his participation um, in the publication of the um, alleged defamation statement, correct? Correct. What, and, and what does, um, how do you treat the initial publication versus the republication? Is there a difference and should there be? The rep no, the, uh, I don't think we're dealing with a republication here. The, the publication was the press release, which by and then the later it was attached, right, to the, uh, the SEC or some Right, form. the press release went out first and then, and the, so yes, you, you, you are right. It, it was a republication. We are suing on the publication. Uh, and I will address this later, but because this case went off on a motion to dismiss, we don't know if there were more republications because we were denied discovery. I will get that to that point in a minute, but let me return to this issue of Weinberger. Actually, te counsel, technically I don't think attaching the press release to the SEC filing would be a republication. The company was again publishing the statement. Republication, as I understand it, is when a third party takes someone else's statement and then disseminates it. I'm not sure it makes any difference. I, I, I don't think it makes any difference, and I, I take your point. Okay. But it just does not make a difference here. Weinberger. Uh, Weinberger, I think we got off track on Weinberger at the district court level. Uh, the respondent argued that the uh, Weinberger case was dispositive. The district court seemed to agree. Court of Appeals seemed to agree as well. Let me talk about Weinberger for a minute. Weinberger was a defamation case, uh, but the issue there had nothing to do with any requirement that the defendant had to have personally authored the publication. In fact, counsel, when was the first time that, that that issue was raised, that there had to be the author of the publication? At the district court level. And But the district court, while it focused somewhat on that, it, it seemed to have a different analysis than the Court of Appeals. Do you agree? No, I don't. I, I think the district court said the overriding reason for the district court was that Weinberger has said you have to have made the, the, the statement. And I think the Court of Appeals picked up on that as well. You think the Court of Appeals narrowed the argument at all by saying they had to actually author oh, the yes. statement? Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, that, that is correct. Yes. Uh, I was dealing with it. But, but you agree that in order to be sued for defamation, you have to make the statement. Your argument here is that the defendant did make the statement because he was effectively, he effectively made the statement because he directed that it be made. He authored it. He approved it. I mean, author's the wrong word. He approved it. He, as the CEO, he Correct. sort of forced the company. I mean, isn't that your argument? Yes. So he did make the statement. Yes, and I think we are getting hung up on what the word made means uh, because the, the, the issue in Weinberger was a fight over a subpoena that had been issued uh, in an attempt to determine the identity of certain unknown sources, uh, some of whom were alleged to have said something defamatory about the plaintiff, a high school football coach. And this court, not surprisingly by Justice Page, uh, held that the subpoena was proper because the plaintiff was entitled to learn which of the unnamed sources had made the statement. And from this court's use of the word made in the Weinberger case, which was written in the context of the need to determine which of several sources was responsible for or had made a particular statement, the district court and the court of appeals fashioned this rather novel rule that liability can only be imposed on the individual who had personally authored the defamatory statement. And that's simply wrong. There is nothing in Weinberger. There is nothing in any of the progeny coming out of Weinberger suggesting even remotely that liability can attach only to the person who personally authored the defamatory publication. 
in fact, I will submit that there is no support in any Minnesota case or any case in any jurisdiction suggesting, even suggesting and not even holding, that liability is appropriate to impose only on the person who personally authored the defamatory article. And it is telling, I think, that the respondent in his brief to this court does not dispute the Court of Appeals' misreading of Weinberger, nor does he dispute the court's misreading of Ellingson. And in fact, he does not even in his brief mention the reliance on Ellingson. Uh, let me turn to the Court of Appeals' statement uh, that we failed to cite any authority for the proposition that a defendant can be held liable for defamation when he authorizes or approves the statements made by another. That was what the Court of Appeals said right at the beginning of the case, uh, the decision, and with due respect, that statement is simply incorrect. There was abundant authority cited for this proposition. This, for example, was the fundamental holding of the Kessinen case. It was a Court of Appeals case. It was a defamation case as well. And in Kessinen, the court stated that a defendant can be personally liable when he takes part in the commission of the tort. Tort, of course, defamation. This case was cited to the Court of Appeals with virtually no response from the respondent. They cited the case, but for a different proposition. And to the Court of Appeals, we cited the restatement of torts. We cited SAC on defamation. We cited Fletcher's on corporations, all for the same proposition that an individual who plays a responsible part or who directs the commission of the defamation is liable for that tort. All counsel, of the, counsel, if I may, um, what does the record tell us about the role that Mr. McKenzie allegedly played? And, 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 and maybe let me just go a step further. Maybe this is all a function of the fact that we're at a 12 B, Rule 12B motion stage, you don't know for sure because you haven't done any discovery. But, but I, I got, you know, in reading your opponent's brief, there was some challenge to this idea that Mr. McKenzie had the authority you say he had, that he, what role he played in this statement. And, and how much of that do we need to know at, at, at this stage in order to rule in your favor? Uh, it's an excellent point, and I was going to get to it later, but let me explain the factual basis of what happened here. After Mr. DeRosa left the company, uh, and was no longer on the board of Dakota Plains, he was sued by Dakota Plains in Nevada. Very inconvenient forum for him. He was sued by this corporation. He was an individual. He was sued by a huge law firm representing a big corporation. And in that case, he was able to take a couple depositions. And in that case, Mr. McKenzie was deposed. And during that time, while the, most of the deposition centered on other issues, uh, Mr. McKenzie was asked about his involvement in the press release. And he said, yes, I authorized that press release. I approve that press release. And that is all we know. We do not know what other role he but might have But you're played. saying your position is that's enough under the, the yes. our case law and under the restatement um, that the fact that he authorized it, um, is, is that's enough to say he, quote, unquote, he made it? Yes. Okay. I mentioned the treatises, and I also point out we have no, received no response on that from the defendants. Other things we cited, which I think are interesting in context, are the Fridell and Lewis decisions. They went off on agency principles. But those decisions, in those decisions, the linchpin in those cases was whether the defendant, one defendant, had control over the defamatory publication. 
That was the issue. Control had nothing to do with who had personally. Counsel, I have a question in regards to the pleadings, if I can move to that. Um, and it I'm actually sorry, comes yeah. from the pleadings, the, yes. the pleadings and the sufficiency of the pleadings. So in the deposition, um, why not just attach that deposition or parts of that deposition or include the language from the deposition in the second amended complaint? We did. Uh, we did not attach it. We included the language precisely. He had authorized and approved. Okay. Uh, in any event, in uh, Friedel and Lewis, those determinations went off on the issue of control and not authorship. And finally, uh, the Janus line of cases, I understand that they are deal with federal securities laws, but the issue there, of course, is control and not authorship. <coughs> Here, uh, Mr. McKenzie, the defendant, had control over the defamatory publication. He authorized it. He approved it. He participated in the commission of the tort and under Minnesota law and the law of every other jurisdiction. It is clearly sufficient to impose liability on a defendant. And with respect to the uh, points raised by justices, uh, it is certainly sufficient to state a claim for relief. Counsel, uh, opposing counsel in, in his party's brief raises the specter that this would somehow infringe on the doctrine of piercing the corporate veil. That's under the public policy discussion, and I didn't notice a particular response to that in your reply brief. Could you respond to that? You know, I'd be happy to, and I simply, uh, he has raised this before. Uh, it was not germane in the Court of Appeals decision, but I see absolutely, we are not piercing the corporate veil. We would be piercing the corporate veil if because of the <clears throat> statement by Dakota Plains, we were seeking to hold Mr. McKenzie liable. Vicariously liable. Vicariously liable. We, we are not doing that. Now, he does raise the point, uh, talking about our papers, how uh, we did raise a vicarious liability point very early on in front of the uh, district court. I hope I made it very clear in my reply brief that we are not pursuing that on appeal. We you, are, you disclaim vicarious liability. You're proceeding on the theory that he's independently liable. Correct. And with respect to this point that it is certainly sufficient what we have alleged to state a cause of action, a claim for relief, as I mentioned before, important to bear in mind, this was decided at the motion to dismiss level. No discovery uh, had occurred besides the fact that we simply happened to have this testimony from the Nevada case where Mr. DeRosa was uh, sued, which, by the way, was a case where he was sued and by Dakota Plains, and it ended up, it was so frivolous that he ended up receiving $10,000 to drop the case, to agree to the offer of judgment. Beyond the fact that Mr. McKenzie authorized and approved a press release, we don't know what else he did because this went off on a motion to dismiss. We don't know if he did not have a hand in the drafting of the press release. His lawyers on appeal say he didn't, somebody else did. We don't know that. We've never had discovery on that. We don't know if he did not take some other action to republish. And because we lack the facts, solely because we lack the facts at the pleading stage to make the allegation that Mr. McKenzie did not personally write the press release. This court asked us, can you make that statement? And I said, no, I don't know. I can't make that statement. I didn't, information or belief, discovery. I said, I could not make that statement. And we have taken the legal position that we did not have to plead that. Our case has been dismissed. We were denied the right to proceed. And I submit to the court that that was error. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have 15 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Breyer.
If it pleases the court and counsel, my name is John Breyer, uh, law firm of Kutek Rock, and I represent Craig McKenzie. We're here today because the appellant in this case is trying to carve out new law. And he's doing that for one simple reason. He was unable to sue the company. The company is alleged to have released the press release. The company ended up in bankruptcy, therefore precluding the appellant from bringing the case well, against... Well, counsel, I, I'm, I'm troubled a little bit by that argument because it seems to me that the argument that opposing counsel is making is that the Court of Appeals and the District Court, the Court of Appeals in particular, is off track in focusing on authorship here. And, um, for example, um, they suggest that Ellingson is not uh, properly uh, described in the Court of Appeals' opinion. And I know you don't address that in your brief, or at least I didn't see it among the list of cases here. Um, can you talk for a minute about the argument that counsel makes about Ellingson and whether or not he's correct? Ellingston has certain elements that apply to this case. Do I think it's the best case that the appellate court could have cited? No. There are other cases this court has cited for the proposition. That's not the best one. That I won't disagree with. But I will say, however, this issue about whether Mr. McKenzie made the statement, there is not enough in the pleading to suggest that he made the statement. And in fact, you heard counsel repeat today what was in their brief, which they have no good faith basis to articulate any participation whatsoever by Mr. McKenzie. The fact of the matter is this press release was attached to a Form 8K, a corporate filing which cannot be made without board approval. This is not a situation in which the cases that the appellant has cited where an officer or an employee authors a letter, signs their name, and issues it to a person for which it contained defamatory it's, statements. Let's, I think there's some mission creep here, and I want to go back to that uh, a minute here, because um, now we've morphed into the authorship question. And I, I think what I hear opposing counsel say is that authorship isn't required. So how do you respond to that? I mean, you just told me you're focusing on authorship. Tell me why he's wrong to say authorship is not required. Because he doesn't cite a single case to suggest that it is. So in the cases that are cited, all well, of which... Well, we know that authorship isn't required because we have this whole body of law on republication. So, I mean, if, if, if I make a defamatory statement and then the media picks it up and republishes it, the media might be responsible under a republication theory, but they're not the author. So, I mean, we know you don't have to be the author, right? There has to be something else. Correct. I would say, one, that this is not a republication issue. We're talking... No, I agree with that, but I mean, it, 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 cases are illustrative of the principle, it seems to me, that you don't have to be the author. But applying that principle, Mr. McKenzie would have to do something affirmative. He would have had to take the press release, the press release the company issued, and then use it in a fashion that republishes it. It's him taking an affirmative action. It's him directly participating in the defamatory conduct. Or so here, you agree that if a corporate, if the CEO participates in the defamation, that the CEO can be liable in defamation. I want to be careful about the word participation because there's different words being used throughout this case. New one, new phrase I heard today was responsible part. Um, what we're looking at is what is it that Mr. McKenzie did, affirmatively did on himself personally and individually to express a defamatory statement? Well, counsel, let's, let's try to pin it down then. Would you agree the word directs is enough? In other words, PR Flack comes to CEO and says, here's the press release. The CEO reads it and says, I approve. Let it fly. I direct you to go ahead and, and publish it. Is that enough? No, Your Honor. The, the, the issue here is you have a board-level approval of a form I, I'm not talking about the facts of this case. I'm asking you as a conceptual matter, as a matter of law, is explicit direction to issue a defamatory statement enough to uh, sue the officer personally. The case law talks about an example like a speechwriter, right? The speechwriter is writing the speech, let's say it's for the officer in this particular case. The speechwriter is not liable, even though they're one that is penning the words, right? Because the words are attributable directly to the officer. Yeah, but director. that's not my question. Okay. PR Flack prepares a press release at the direction of an officer. Officer reads it, <clears throat> says, this is terrific, send it out. 
Is that enough for personal liability? For personal liability to attach, those statements, those words have to take owner, or the officer would have to take ownership of them. In your example, in they're, your example. They're, they're the words of the corporation. Well, that, We're talking that's, about a corporation here. That's the important distinction. Are they the words, are they the, the expression of the CEO, or are they the expression of the company? The company is a legal entity. It's a person under the law. You must define who made the defamatory statements. Were they made by the corporation or were they made by the individual? Here the allegation is they're made by the company, the company being a legal person. Well, what about the Ellingson case? And let's just change the facts of Ellingson a little bit and say that the, the employee, the officer of the company, hadn't just arrived at the race course at the, you know, in the hour that the race was going on, but had arrived earlier and actually talked about and worked with the people at the race course to figure out what the proper construction of the race course was going to be. It seems like the implication of Ellingson is in that context, because he was there and part of the discussion, not only would the corporation be liable, but he would also be personally liable, right? I would agree with that. And so if a, similarly in defamation, if someone is, if a, this corporate officer is working with the people creating the press release, directing it to be issued, authorizing it, participating in that process, why wouldn't that similar tort principle apply here? It might, but that's not what's alleged here. Well, it says it was he was directed and published the press release. Well, no, the allegation is that Dakota Plains issued the press release. Here it's just that no, Mr. It says McKenzie... No, it says Craig McKenzie for his actions in directing and publishing a press release. I, I don't know what they mean by that. Well, when, when you, when you, but you've got to take the allegations on the face of the complaint as true, right? You can, but in the... No, not only you can, you must. In a right? Yes. In a, but for a defamatory claim to exist, you must specify, you must be specific in your allegations. Here you can't throw out terms like responsible part or participation. You we have to be specific it. about what the statement is. You have to articulate how the statement attaches itself to the particular individual. Where's the authority for that? Your Honor, that's in the cases that have been cited by the appellant. The appellant has brought in cases from other jurisdictions for this proposition that participation somehow creates the link between the press release defamatory statement and the personal actions of Mr. McKenzie. But he's alleging personal actions in this complaint. I mean, maybe on summary judgment you win because we discovered Mr. McKenzie had nothing to do with it. But on a motion to dismiss, don't we have to assume all of those things in favor of the plaintiff? You have to take the allegations as true. You can't assume or infer from the allegations. Here, he's asking you to infer from the allegations that Mr. McKenzie had a greater participation, a greater direct touching of that statement, other than for voting along with his other board members for well, issuance of the Council, let's go to paragraph 11 of the second amended complaint. It alleges that Mr. McKenzie's direction and with his approval Dakota Plains issued a press release that was critical of Lone Star and Lone Star's actions. Mr. McKenzie approved the press release. Isn't that enough? <laughs> Your Honor, I know that's the argument that's being made by the appellant. But the matter of fact is that is the company that issued the press release. All the cases in which the officer is issuing a letter or issuing something and then tries to hide behind the corporate veil, in each one of those cases that has been cited to you, they're the ones that literally put the words there's, on there's the There's no page. question the company issued the press release. Um, if um, a CEO directs a subordinate to go beat up a board member, um, certainly the CEO is, is liable in, for the assault and battery of the board member, isn't he? I agree. Okay. I agree. So if you direct somebody to issue a press release that's defamatory, then why aren't you liable? Because you need to articulate what are the statements in the press release that are attributable to Mr. McKenzie. I mean, th this broad statement of somehow he directed it doesn't get you to where you need to be because you need and to. And your authority for that is what? In, in, under Minnesota law? I, under Minnesota law, there is no law that says you have to do that. Counsel, is, didn't okay, law, didn't law of another state. Enough. Well, the, the law of the other state's been cited by the appellant. And those cases that they cite are. The A&D Industries versus Hometown Properties, in, which is out of a Rhode Island 1991 case, and Oxman's Irwin um, versus Blackster, which is a Wisconsin 1979 case. In both of those instances, in the Oxman case, you have the officer 
making the misrepresentation. The words are coming out of, of his mouth. In A&D Industries, A&D being the initials of the owners of the company, they sent letters, personal letters, to customers that created the tortious interference and defamation claim. They were personal actions. Then they went and tried to hide behind the corporate shield. So your position is any time that a, a, the press release comes from the corporation, the officer is not liable? Unless you can allege that the officer authored the press release. Simply taking a corporate action. So if the author, or if the CEO actually wrote the press release and then directed the communications department to send it out, then that would be okay, but only in that circumstance. Similar to the example, if the, if a, if the marketing department created something for the officer to send out and he sends it out and it becomes his words, then yes. Try, try this one on for size. The CEO says to the um, person in the communications department, uh, I want to allege that the board member is a child molester. Prepare a press release for me saying he's a child molester. And then the, the flag does so, brings it to the CEO. The CEO says, it's exactly what I directed. I approve it. Is the CEO personally liable? Yes, because the CEO yes. is saying okay. exactly what needs to be put onto the paper, which is part of the press release. Here, they don't identify any words or statements by Mr. McKenzie. But how are, could they? Because there's no discovery yet. That's I mean, problem. isn't that the point of no... Is, this is really... A, this case is ultimately about what is notice pleading, right? Yes. And you're just saying that under our notice pleading rules, this complaint isn't sufficient to at least raise the possibility that that theory that you're talking about couldn't couldn't have happened. I mean, we don't know one way or the other. Right. I mean, I mean, I don't know, and nothing in the record tells me whether he actually wrote the press release or not, right? He didn't. There was no participation. Well, well, we don't we'll know that, there, though. We'll get there when, if, if, this, if this case gets remanded, which I hope it doesn't, all of that will come. But isn't that kind of the point? I mean, you're saying that to us, but we don't, that's not in the record. No, there's no record of that. Counsel, how is your um, position on what degree of pleading specificity is required consistent with our case of Walsh versus U.S. Bank? So I'd like to actually go back to Weinberg because that's, that's but, where we're... But I'd like to ask okay. you about Walsh. Okay, so the... In the then, you can go, then you can go back to the <laughs> other W case. Right, so the, the, the issue is whether you can have a defamatory statement where you don't necessarily identify who made it. And it's this issue of who made it that's the, the crux of this case, right? And so under Weinberg, it specifically says you need to identify who made the statement. That case has been cited by this court just in this past, last two months um, in the Someplace Safe case, which was a June 2019 decision by this court, in which, again, the same language is used, which is you need to identify um, who made the defamatory statement. And here the defamatory statement is clearly the company's statement. Had Mr. McKenzie penned it, authored it, signed it, and then issued it out? Yes, under that example, that would be sufficient from a pleading standard that they have articulated a claim for defamation. Here, because they cannot articulate any participation at all by Mr. McKenzie, and have repeatedly said they don't have a good faith basis to make such an allegation, you just can't get there from a pleading standpoint. So in these cases, as you read them and understand them, look to what is the officer or director or employee doing in each of these cases. In each one of them, they have a direct contact, whether they wrote the letter and issued it to a customer, whether the misrepresentation came out of their mouth, or in these personal injury cases. Then, counsel, how do you respond to the language from the deposition in the Nevada lawsuit, where it appears to me that Mr. McKenzie did make an acknowledgment of his participation Sure, as a board member. I mean, he, Mr. McKenzie cannot issue Form 8Ks on his own. The company has to use its officers and directors to communicate on its behalf. That's how these things are developed and how they're worked. So if the board is going to approve a Form 8K, Mr. McKenzie can't just fire it off to the SEC himself. You know, Counsel, I, I'm not sure I like this rule of law. In fact, I kind of think I don't. Um, but as I'm looking at our jurisprudence about individual, um, individual officer responsibility for corporate torts, I'm not sure you're right when you say uh, if the board just simply votes 
on issuing a defamatory statement, somehow board members are insulated from liability. I think they've participated. You look at you look at that long list of cases, um, going back a hundred years, maybe not quite, but certainly in that neighborhood. Um, it seems to me there might very well be individual uh, board liability, even if they never authored it, as you suggest. Why, why am I wrong about that? What what authority do you point to that says? You as a board member are insulated from individual liability for a corporate tort um, simply because you didn't author the document. Your Honor, the cases that discuss that deal with sort of a, a dual approach. You can be liable as a corporation for the same act that the individual can be liable for. Those cases I'm not disputing. Here, however, the issue is what part, what personal action, what personal contribution, participation, or this new phrase today, responsible part. Did and why isn't voting, uh, this, is, this is less than what they are alleging, but why isn't simply voting as a board to issue a statement that's defamatory? Why, why isn't that made, as, as is said in Weinberger? Why isn't that enough? Because the board takes actions on behalf of the company. That means the company would not be liable. Then each individual board member for their part. So now we're going to allocate blame amongst individual board members for their level of participation in voting for a board action. That, that is not supported by Minnesota. I have not found a case that suggests that that's true. The cases that find officers and directors liable make the connection between their personal affirmative conduct and then they try and hide behind the corporation. And then the question is whether the corporate is vicariously liable for their acts. That's always been the jurisprudence in this area. So yes, you can hold the corporation. Well, part of me says, I hope you're right. I'm not sure you are. And that's the thing that I'm struggling with here. And, and, and I'm just wondering if you can point to anything specific that, that says that. I thought I could flip to the quoted language, Your Honor, but I'm not going to find it as quickly as I had hoped. Um, the cases that were cited, they are consistent amongst this idea that, as we talked about before, the corporation individual, individual can both be held liable. But again, the analysis goes to what did that individual do? How did the individual participate? Was it outside, not of the, 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 the scope of their employment, but outside the uh, corporate activities of the company itself. So in this particular instance, Dakota Plains, Dakota Plains is issuing a press release about the lawsuit that it was involved in in Nevada. It is issuing information on a Form 8K. It is informing the investing public as it's required that a lawsuit has been initiated against a former board member. Those are all corporate actions. Now, in these other cases, there's individuals who on their own, individually and affirmatively, are taking actions that either benefited themselves, like Counsel, the Bloomquist Counsel, can you address um, Dorn and how that impacts you or your client's position? I'm sorry, Your Honor? Dorn, can you address Dorn? Dorn. The case of Dorn? I'm not familiar with the case of Dorn, okay. Your Honor. Um, is that a case that we had cited? I don't, I don't believe it is. Um, so to my point on this, this is a pleadings case. And so to the extent that we're adopting a rule that Mr. McKenzie is somehow liable for the conduct of the company, then you need to articulate in very specific fashion what that participation was. What words did he offer? What edits did he create? What part of the press release did he direct and in this case, he doesn't, it doesn't exist in the pleading. It simply says that he approved and authorized. Counsel, we're, in, we're a notice pleading state. We're not a twickball state. Um, and that's what Walsh versus U.S. Bank said. Is there any set of facts based on the words directed and approved that could result in liability for Mr. M uh, McKenzie? If they had put some more meat on those bones, maybe they could have gotten over the pleading hurdle. But they don't. 
because the pleading here simply states that the Dakota Plains issued the press release. Now, if it was issued by Mr. McKenzie, if he authored it, penned it, even if he put it on the letterhead of Dakota Plains, they would have cleared the hurdle. But they didn't do that. They articulate no participation but, in but the, the crafting. But the pleading, I'm just reading from the pleading, yeah. it says it's a case against Craig McKenzie for his actions, McKenzie's actions, in directing and publishing a press release falsely accusing Mr. DeRosa. How is that not saying Mr. McKenzie directed and published a press release? That's not saying the corporation did, it's saying Mr. McKenzie did. Because the, the pleading encapsulates what the press release was, how it was issued. It talks about Dakota Plains issuing the press release. It is a Dakota Plains action. There's no denying that. What now the plaintiff is trying to do, or the appellant in this case, is parse this out and say Mr. McKenzie is liable. And I'm, what I tried to articulate at the beginning of this case is the reason they do that is one, they failed to bring the case in the bankruptcy court when they could have brought it. And two, Mr. DeRosa accepted a Rule 68 offer but counsel, in the Nevada at the, case. At the, at the initial part of the argument, I asked opposing counsel it, that it doesn't matter what Mr. McKenzie's role is. It is, this action is very um, clearly directed specifically at Mr. McKenzie, regardless of whether he is CEO or not. And in support of what Justice Thiessen was just saying, and going back to what Justice Lillehog said, again, I go to um, number 11, and it specifically says, as Justice Lillehog read, that um, Mr. McKenzie's direction, with, and with his approval, Dakota Plains issued a press release that was critical of Lone Star. Mr. McKenzie approved the press release and thus had control over defamatory content of the publication. That's, to me, very clearly what the matter is about. So why is that insufficient from a notice standpoint? Because I would argue that you can't simply take the single allegation and pull it out of the complaint. The complaint talks about the Form 8K and the press release being issued by Dakota Plains, the circumstances as to why that press release was issued. Those allegations can't be ignored in this context. All of those actions were the company's actions. The company started the litigation in Nevada. The company issued the press release as it was required to do so under SEC law. It was the company that, that, that submitted the Form 8K. None of these actions could be done individually by Mr. McKenzie. And so if it's the company that's doing this action, in order to attach personal liability, they have to be specific in what level of participation did he have in the creation of the press release? He had none. He didn't articulate any of the words in the press release. They when, don't allege Counsel, when did. you're saying he had none, are you making a representation to the court as to the state of the facts, or are you saying the complaint doesn't allege that he had any? The, the complaint doesn't allege that he does, and they've admitted in the Because we haven't had discovery yet. Right, and they've admitted in the briefing before this court they have no good faith basis to articulate that that participation. They don't have any. So the only thing they're holding on to is the deposition testimony that they put into the complaint. And I would argue that's insufficient. Where, where have they admitted that they don't have a good faith basis to uh, allege that Mr. McKenzie participated? Uh, I believe it's page 12 of their brief. To this court? I believe that's right, okay. unless I've miscited this to the appellate. But he, they've admitted they have no good faith basis to allege that McKenzie made any of the defamatory statements. So, I mean, if, you, if you're, you're, they're resting their entire case on this approval and authorization of somebody else's statements. That's essentially what this boils down to. And so they're not trying to hold him personally liable for the conduct of the company or the board as a whole, however you want to divide it up. But essentially, this is an issue that Mr. McKenzie couldn't sue the company. So now the, his only option is to sue an individual, and he's picked the individual he likes the least. And so under that context, he's missed the boat because he should have brought the case in the bankruptcy court. He's missed the boat because he didn't plead this case appropriately in order to attach the personal liability to Mr. McKenzie because he does not articulate anywhere in the complaint the participation in crafting the statement. And so I want to ask you if we disagree with you and conclude that the defamation claim should be reinstated, then do we also direct the district court to reinstate the uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress claim? I think by, by implication you'd have to. Um, the issue, if, if it gets remanded down to the district court, there will be another motion to dismiss, as there were many issues of privilege that were articulated 
um, in that motion practice that the court never reached um, because the, the Mr. McKenzie or Mr. DeRosa did not meet the pleading standard, which has been articulated by Weinberg is that you have to articulate that the defendant made the statement. Here they did not articulate that Mr. McKenzie made the statement. And for that reason, uh, Your Honors, I, I appreciate the affirmance of the lower court. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Williams, you have 15 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you very much. Uh, four points I have to make. I think I'm all right with this. Okay. Uh, number one, there was some discussion at the end about we stated we did not have a good faith basis to make a number of allegations. Uh, counsel for respondents cited page 12. I, I simply do not see it. Uh, in page 12, so I'm not quite sure that that was an appropriate I think he reference. said page 11, but I'm looking at page 11 and 12, and I don't see it either. I'm sorry. Well, I would agree. Uh, secondly, uh, Chief Justice Gudea, I certainly agree with your point on re the republication cases not having authorship. Uh, it is a good point. Uh, I did not make it in the brief, and I think I should have. But I take the point, and it is a good one. Third point. I believe uh, Mr. Breyer uh, told you that this term, responsible party, was heard for the first time uh, this morning, and it was not. That is. A, the specific words taken from the treatise Sack on Defamation, which is the leading treatise, and it's cited in our brief. A responsible part in the defamation is sufficient to impose liability. Fourth point and last point. We, Mr. Breyer, began by saying that there was no participation by Mr. McKenzie. Uh, I'm, I don't understand that uh, statement. I do not understand why approving and authorizing a defamatory press release does not constitute participation. But I will take, even assuming that that does not, the cases go on beyond participation. We talked about the Morgans versus Eaton's Dude Ranch case, which we said was the seminal case on tort liability in Minnesota, 1976 case. And what it says is it, the uh, corporate officer would be liable if he participated in, and then it goes on, participated in or directed or was negligent in failing to learn and prevent the tort. Learn of and prevent the tort. I would submit that Mr. McKenzie did all three. Thank you. I have nothing further. Counsel, I just want to ask you about um, paragraph 11 in your second amended complaint where you allege you say, under Minnesota law, Mr. McKenzie is directly and vicariously liable for the publication. Now, you had some exchange earlier with Justice Lohog about the vicarious liability theory, but just, just explain to me how, in the context of an intentional tort, which defamation is, an individual could be both directly and vicariously liable. I think it is, I have not thought about that, but I think it would be possible to have direct participation and because of his position in the company, had he had some position in the company with respect to that, could be vicariously liable. But I want to emphasize that we are beyond the vicarious liability issue here. Thank you very much. If you weren't, then you'd have a piercing the corporate veil problem, wouldn't yes, you? Yes, we would. Yes. 
Council, and, and maybe this is a part of those questions, I'm not sure, but one of the things that Mr. Breyer said that, that caught my attention is that what you needed to allege was that Mr. McKenzie did something outside of the corporate activities. The suggestion was this was all a part of the board's actions, the, 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 the board's responsibilities, but the particular phrase was that, that he, you needed to show that he did something uh, he participated in some way outside of the the uh, corporate activities. Your response to that? Uh, my response is that it's not necessary. The, 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 if somebody was acting, what he is simply saying is that if you acted outside of the scope of your corporate liability, you could only be liable. That's not the case. If you acted outside the scope of your responsibility, you may not get insurance coverage, right, okay. right. but if you, the fact that you are acting with or without, within or without, the um, uh, scope of your duties does not absolve you of liability. If you participated in it, okay. if you directed it, if you were negligent in not stopping it. Okay. Council, bef before you leave, I, I just want to ask you one more question. Um, so the cases, the Ellingston and the um, Dude Ranch case, um, and then you cite one in your complaint, Ferdell versus Blakely, um, for this idea that a corporate officer who participates in an intentional tort can be responsible. Those are all cases that they, we cite the rule, but we don't apply it because we conclude the corporate officer in those cases was not involved. Is there a case where we've actually affirmatively adopted the rule and held a corporate officer responsible for an intentional tort? Uh, the answer is yes. They are cited in our brief. Okay. But let me just say this. It's an interesting point, and I know that Mr. Breyer says that in his brief where he says the statement in Morgan versus Eaton's Dude Ranch is just dicta. And technically he's right about that. But if you then go to uh, Morgan versus Eaton, you see what they rely upon for that statement, and it is Ellingson. We're back to Ellingson. But the same thing happened in Ellingson. Uh, I, I cannot answer that. I do not know, but I think that there, uh, I, I will submit that it is the universal rule that if you were responsible for it, if you were a corporate officer and play a role in the tort that you're responsible for. And to your knowledge, has any jurisdiction carved out a defamation exception to the usual role, the usual rule of corporate officer liability for intentional torts? No. Thank All right, thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.